Welcome to the third episode of the podcast, A History of Literary Criticism. This week's episode discusses Aristotle's poetics, including some biographical information and important concepts from Aristotle's broader work. A script of the episode with references is available on the website www.ahistoryofliterarycriticism.wordpress.com. Historical and intellectual context. Aristotle lived from 384 to 322 BC. He was born in Stagira, then in northern Greece, and in 367 BC he went to Athens to study with Plato at the Academy. A gifted student, Aristotle became a teacher at the Academy until 347 BC, around the time of Plato's death. After travelling throughout Greece, teaching and conducting scientific research, Aristotle was invited to become the tutor of Philip II of Macedonia's son, 13 at the time. Philip's son was named Alexander, going on to be known as Alexander the Great. In 335, Aristotle returned to Athens and established his own school, the Lyceum. The Lyceum would form a rivalry with the academy, while the majority of the academy's students was aristocracy, Aristotle's school accepted more middle-class students. Additionally, while the academy followed Plato's established focus on maths and politics, the Lyceum was dedicated to natural sciences and sociology. Aristotle left Athens in 323 to live on the island of Euboea, where he died in 322 BC. Aristotle's varied interests and philosophical work permeates poetics. In his scientific research, Aristotle relied on analysis, that is, breaking down a whole into its disparate parts. This method allowed Aristotle to differentiate and classify the orders of living things, as he attempted throughout his scientific treatises, such as movement of animals and parts of animals. This classification forms the central objective of poetics. A number of Aristotle's philosophical concepts are also significant to his discussion of tragedy. In politics, Aristotle discusses his ideal state. Rather than a homogeneous group, Aristotle argued that a state should be comprised of a number of different parts, living harmoniously as a whole. The role of the state is to maintain harmony. The importance of such unity is to be found throughout poetics. The state must also help people to live, in Aristotle's words, the good life. This good life is a life of virtue, and the role of the state is to provide the material resources to allow people to act virtuously. This focus on action is also significant to the poetics. In politics, Aristotle insists that virtue is not sufficient, that people must act virtuously. However, this is confused by his assertion that, quote, happiness is action. Aristotle clarifies that the significance of happiness is that its objective is to do good things. Therefore, for Aristotle, 
An action is anything which has a moral or virtuous objective, and this is significant for the discussion of poetics. Poetics Poetics was likely written during Aristotle's time at the Lyceum. Like many of his remaining works, it is a fragment and written in a direct style. For this reason, scholars believe the surviving document comprised part of Aristotle's lecture notes or a study guide. Additionally, it is thought that a second part of the document existed which focused on comedy. Like Plato, Aristotle highlights that poetry is a representation. However, unlike Plato, Aristotle argues that representation is useful and beneficial because representation is natural for humans and we use it to learn. Also because representation is pleasant and this happiness is important for a harmonious society. The focus of such representations is contradictory in poetics. While Aristotle initially argues that poetry should represent things which are possible in the future, he also suggests that the poet can represent events as they should be. Poetics begins by distinguishing broadly between comedy and tragedy, particularly in their different objectives and histories. However, he soon introduces a clear definition of tragedy. Quote, tragedy is a representation of a serious, complete action which has magnitude in embellished speech with each of its elements used separately in the various parts of the play, represented by people acting and not by narration, accomplishing by means of pity and terror the catharsis of such emotions. This definition summarises many of the most important aspects of tragedy in poetics. Emphasising the importance of unity in Aristotle's work, the action of a tragic play must be complete. The play must include a beginning, before which no information is necessary, a middle, which relies on the information provided in the beginning and introduces the end which concludes all of the action and after which nothing occurs. The unity provided by these parts also defines the magnitude of a tragic play's action. The events must be of such a scale that the audience can, quote, conceive the whole. While a bigger scope is better, Aristotle argues, the action should not be so large that the audience is not able to understand it in its entirety. The influence of Aristotle's scientific inquiry can be noted here, in his desire to view a whole as a matter of its component parts. Aristotle spends a lot of time talking about the various parts and structure of tragic plays. While the distinct parts of tragedy, prologue, episode, exit and choral, are mentioned and clearly defined, Aristotle quickly turns to the various plots of tragedy, Following his theory of action, the plot is the most important part of a tragic play. However, these actions must still follow the laws of unity. They must be interconnected, 
with justification for each action coming from within the play itself, preferably according to a previous action. Plots can be simple or complex. Complex plots contain two of the elements commonly associated with tragedies, reversals and recognitions. Reversals are the changes from good to bad fortune, or vice versa. Recognition is the movement from ignorance to knowledge. Complex plots are better than simple plots, which don't include reversal or recognition. Double plots are also possible, wherein two characters will experience opposing reversals or recognitions. The reversal from a good situation to a bad situation is more likely to cause terror or pity, Aristotle notes. This terror or pity is also caused by suffering, another important part of tragedy's plots. This feeling of emotion leads to its purification and relief, catharsis. The ability of a tragic play to evoke pity is also attributed to the play's characters, and Aristotle's thoughts can be summarised into three main points. Firstly, characters should be generally good, but not too virtuous or too evil. Neither of these are lifelike, and would therefore prevent the audience from engaging with the character. Secondly, characters should act in a manner appropriate to their station or gender. Aristotle argues that women can be ridiculous, and enslaved people are not worthy of concern. Lastly, characters should act consistently throughout the play, and be lifelike. This definition is open to some interpretation, although Aristotle probably means that they should act according to established myths and legends. The requirement of a character to be more or less normal implicates another of Aristotle's famous definitions in Poetics, the tragic flaw. Tragic characters cannot be evil, and therefore the action which causes the events in a tragedy must be accidental. Aristotle uses the word error. Indeed, once again we can see the importance of action in Aristotle's definition. As the error is circumstantial rather than a permanent character flaw which would prevent the audience from engaging with the subject. Aristotle concludes Poetics by referring back to Epic. Similarities can be found between tragedy and the Epic form. Epic should also be unified, however, the magnitude of epics is less important, and they can include more action than would be included in a tragedy. This impacts the length of an epic, which can be longer. Epics should be told in heroic verse, so as to communicate the importance of the events, and the poet should not be included in a recognisable form. Lastly, and importantly for Aristotle, is whether epic or tragedy is the better form. While many think it is epic because it attends to grander themes, tragedy is, in fact, the superior form, because it includes all aspects of epic, as well as being more vivid. Also, tragedy is unified and a smaller length, 
making it more concentrated and therefore more pleasurable. As with Plato, Aristotle's work has been so influential that it can be difficult to isolate specific theories. Aristotle's identification of tragedy's disparate elements dominates criticism, even until today, when deviations from this definition are often highlighted, while Aristotle's definitions remain the norm. Interestingly, while Aristotle does not dedicate much time to catharsis in poetics, this enigmatic concept has generated much debate in literary studies, while also influencing fields as distinct as psychology and sociology. The great figure of the tragic hero, felled by the tragic flaw, has similarly become a personification of the random nature of life. Most overtly, Aristotle's criticism is formalist, and his method of defining the different aspects of tragedy was adopted by a number of formalist theorists, and the attention paid to character, plot and narrative remains the foundation of genre theories. However, Aristotle does not ignore the other points of Abrams's triangle discussed in the first episode of this podcast. Aristotle discusses the reader's emotional response and engagement. The social function of poetry is also a concern, although pales in comparison to Plato's didacticism. The only point of the triangle to which Aristotle pays little attention is the artist. Nevertheless, often called the first, greatest and most influential work of literary criticism, poetics values literature and the skill required for its creation. Thank you for listening to this episode of A History of Literary Criticism. If you can, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast channel. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Similarly, if you have a suggestion of a theorist who could be included on the show, please let me know. The email address for this and anything else is ahistoryoflitcrit at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at litcritpodcast. Next week's episode will be dedicated to Aristotle's rhetoric. Some suggested reading will be available on the website, which might be useful as preparation.